Thank you so much. Good morning. We've been involved in a series over the course of these weeks, months, dealing with Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And we've been looking at various phrases that describe what one's relationship could be, should be, and today what ought not be. We've looked at what it means to be in Christ, haven't we? Why we are to go through Christ what it means to be under Christ, and the dynamics of what it involves to be with Christ. Well, today what I want to do is to now look carefully with you at a passage of Scripture that describes those that position themselves against Christ and see how God still even uses that to achieve his purposes for his glory. This is really significant because when you're looking at all the opposition to Jesus Christ in this world and all the contrary forces and you're wondering sometimes, where is God and when will God step in? Here's a passage for you and for me to consider. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23, where in this chapter and the previous chapter, we find the apostle Paul, excuse me, Peter and John having been involved in a miracle where this man who had been lame, as the Luke, the physician, puts it, from birth, was raised up, healed, restored, and the miracle is being recognized by the people out in the streets, and the governmental authorities now are opposing what's being stated that this was done in the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter and John were incarcerated because of what they had done and furthermore what they were proclaiming. Now we find they're released. But as they're released, what I want you to notice, they go right back to the church fellowship and together they're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to examine this prayer this morning. I want to read beginning in verse 23 these words. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests... And the elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. A powerful passage that describes the way in which the church in the early in the early days was having an impact upon the culture marked by courage and boldness. So should we. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And Father, in the warmth of these days, and now in the second of these services, what we're praying is that once again that we are going to be very focused upon who you are. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Three in one. God the creator and God the sustainer. The one from him, through him, for him are all things. The one who sent Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, into this world to die in our place for our sins. We realize that he and he alone is our substitute. And what was accomplished on that cross is sufficient. Nothing we can do can be added to what he has already done. And we praise you and we thank you for that fact. Father, what we want to do now is to glean insights from your word and relate your truth to modern day life. We want to take the principles and the ideas that are found here and connect them to the issues that we're facing even today. And no matter what that person here today is facing, it could be very challenging, it could be very difficult, there could be a wrestling match within the soul right now. What I'm praying is that you're going to go into the inner space of that heart and speak your truth, bring your strength, And whether conviction is needed or comfort is required, meet that need. So, Father, in these minutes that you've given us to be together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever wrestle with how to pray when life seems to be going against you? Where do you begin? One of the classic books on prayer was written by Dr. Ole Hallisby, a professor in Northern Europe of prior generation. And there's an excerpt here that has spoken to my heart. Listen, my friend, he wrote. Your helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all your uttered pleas. God hears it from the very moment that you are seized with helplessness. And he becomes actively engaged at once in hearing and answering the prayer of your helplessness. He hears today as he heard the helpless 
and the wordless prayer of the man sick with palsy. Now, if you come this morning with an utter sense of helplessness, and what you need is a tremendous sense of hopefulness, what we've got here in this passage are guidelines to help you, help me, to be able to pray to God and to find our way out of the most difficult times of life. Now, to set the stage once again, as we had mentioned a few minutes ago, the apostles Peter and John have been released from prison, haven't they? Released from prison, they were incarcerated because not only a man had been healed because of his physical condition, but furthermore, they had been proclaiming out on the streets of Jerusalem that this was done in the name of Jesus Christ. The authorities here that had incarcerated him were the same authorities that had been involved in overseeing the death of Jesus Christ. They wanted to exert their authority by having Jesus Christ put to death, but God superseded with his own authority where three days later Jesus was raised from the dead. And now what you find, and I find, is that there is going to be a clash of authority found one verse after another here in this section. And what we want to do is to identify it, understand it, and realize that it has implications even for today. So if you come this morning and you are wrestling with that tension between a sense of helplessness and a longing for hopefulness, what I want to do now with you is we're looking at God through these words is to draw four significant guidelines as to how you pray when it seems like the forces of this world stand opposed to God. And the first flows out of verse 23 and 24. And we're going to put it like this, number one, that when Christ is opposed, begin with prayer, focusing upon the sovereignty of God which is exactly what these people do. Now, notice that Peter and John have just been released from prison. They have this sense of release. Where do they go? Immediately they're drawn to Christian fellowship. No matter what you are facing in this world, in the midst of the oppositional issues of life, there ought to be a sense of a spiritual magnetism where you are being continuously drawn to the people of Jesus Christ. We come from various backgrounds. We've got a wide range of personalities and personal experiences. But the Lordship of Jesus Christ creates a greater sense of commonality than all the other differences that this world can possibly produce. And so when they were released, notice where they go. They went to their friends, most likely in that upper room, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And what had they said to them? Well, if you go back a few verses in verse 16, those authorities were asking one another, what are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, 
let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, the name of Jesus is an ongoing phrase throughout chapters 3 and 4. The authorities are utterly opposed to this being done, anything being done in the name of Jesus, because that would attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which they had plotted to try to keep from being argued for. But when they heard it, the people now in verse 24, when they hear of what the authorities have said to Peter and to John, they lifted their voices together. Not against the authorities. They lifted their voices together. Not to plan a political response. They lifted their voices together. To whom? To God. And now what I want you to notice is first things. And said, Sovereign Lord, stop right Now, when life seems so incredibly oppositional, you're walking with Jesus, you want to serve Jesus, you are committed to Jesus, but it seems as though life seems to want to thwart your forward movement in grace. Maybe it has something to do with family. Maybe it has something to do with extended relationships. Here's where you begin. Sovereign Lord. Now, this word comes from a Greek word carrying with it the idea in the original of despot. Now, a despot has negative connotations in today's society. But at that point, it simply meant one who had authority. And so they realize that the political authorities are against them. What they're about to do is to appeal to the highest authority. And so they begin with the phrase, Sovereign Lord. When it seems as though life's oppositional forces are blowing against you, and you're walking with Jesus... And it seems as though everything you're trying to do in relationship to God is being frustrated by the issues surrounding you or before you. First things, first person, here's where you begin. Not life's problems. God. Reinforce in your mind where it all begins. Sovereign Lord. Life is not sovereign. God is. The difficulties of life are not sovereign. God is. The oppositional forces to God's will are not sovereign. God is. This is where you begin. Are you doing that? When you're confronted with something that seems utterly opposed to the will of God, and you're walking with God, here's where you begin. Sovereign Lord. Now, you need some help, and I need some help with that. And so to begin to couple the idea of sovereign Lord with the way in which God works, notice what it says next. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Why is that so significant? 
Because as we've sometimes said, and you could probably say it better than I know, if God can create something out of nothing, he can what? Create something good out of something bad. They are looking at bad things. They feel as though they might be overwhelmed by the authorities of those around them. When you feel as though you are overwhelmed by what's around you, you've got to turn your attention to the one who stands above you. In their case, they might feel overwhelmed by the authorities around them, so they refocus their attention upon the sovereign one who stands above them, who has ultimate authority. Again, if he can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. In this case, they're trusting him for that. Likewise you, likewise me, When they heard this bad news, they lifted their voices together to God. What do you do with bad news? Here's where you begin. Sovereign Lord. Bad news, not sovereign. God's grace. God is sovereign. And then to add a little color to this picture, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now you pause there. And that's how you take even the book of Genesis and you relate it to the issues that you're facing in the days in which you live. Justin Mata. He knew something about persecution. He knew something about the oppositional forces of life when one wants to walk with Jesus. And he recognized the value of people who have a spiritual magnetism of coming together corporately to pray to God, sovereign God, in the midst of life's trials. When he wrote, When we are together, we remind one another of these things. And help all who suffer want as best as we can and keep together in harmony. We praise the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit for everything we receive. Bring it a little closer in time. It happened in Poland. It was during the years in which the Soviet Union was flexing its muscle and strength The writer puts it, when the communist tyrants held power in Poland, they ordered all crosses removed from classrooms, factories, hospitals, all public institutions. But the believers in Poland rose up in a great wave of protest. And across the land, government officials backed down. But in one small town, officials were determined to prevail. They insisted on taking down the crosses, hanging in a Christian school. Students responded by staging a sit-in. Heavily armed riot police chased them out. Then the students, nearly now 3,000 of them coming together, carried the crosses to a nearby church to pray. The police surrounded the church, 
Violence was averted only when photographs of the confrontation were flashed around the globe, sparking widespread protests, as found in the book Candles Behind the Wall. Now, what God does at this point for these people who are perhaps in that upper room is that he is lighting this candle behind this wall, and he's allowing them to see visibly his work in the midst of darkness. And likewise, what you and I need to do is to see God at work even in the midst of the darkness. How do you do that? You set up your priority system. You find the spiritual magnetism of the Christian fellowship that is found in Jesus Christ. And when Christ is opposed, you begin to pray. How? You focus, number one, upon the sovereignty of God that's found here, sovereign Lord. And when you need to add a little more color to that picture, you go on. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, And if he can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. But now at this point, what you need to do is to develop this even further. That was your starting point. But now you work your way onward. And in verses 25 and 26, here's your second guideline for praying when you're feeling a sense of helplessness and you're longing for a sense of hopefulness. The number two, when Christ is opposed... Begin with prayer, focusing upon the Word of God in verse 25 and 26. Now what you do is you couple the sovereignty of God in 23 and 24 with the Word of God in verse 25 and 26, and you read on. And now they're allowing God's Word to shape their prayers. And when you feel a sense of utter hopelessness in your heart, and it seems as though your prayers are simply bouncing off the ceiling and going no further, then take God's word and pray God's word back to God. Take God's word and pray God's word back to God. And this is what they do. So in verse 25, they acknowledge then the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writing of the Scriptures, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said how? By the Holy Spirit. So they're saying that this is the inspired word of God at this point. They are. Not some modern-day invention found right here. And now they're finding a sense of emboldenedness and strength and power, and so should you. When you begin coupling the sovereignty of God with the Word of God in your own personal experience, no matter what you're facing. Now, they're looking at the national, they're looking at the global as well as the local. And now they take this, and they've got a question that comes from God's Word. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. Pause. They know how relevant this is. That very same word was used to describe the Sanhedrin. The Jewish authorities, they were plotting to put Jesus Christ to death. What do you do with the plots of humanity? So now, it's a legitimate question. 
the why question. And maybe this morning you come here, you've got some why questions on your mind and your heart. Why are things the way they are? Take the why questions, the Bible that addresses the why questions. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. Now they get a little more tailored in verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together. Now notice the dual emphasis here. Against the Lord, number one. And against his anointed, number two. Against Yahweh, in other words. And against Yahweh's Messiah, the word anointed here. You begin to stop think, pause, and ask, why are things the way they are? Maybe Joseph wrestled with that. But in retrospect, when his brothers who had sold him into slavery were now looking for a sense of reassurance that that would not be held against him, Joseph was then able to say, you meant evil against me. Hear that word against? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Take that word against that Joseph used then, connected to the twofold usage of the word against, found in verse 26, against the Lord and against his anointed, And ponder now how God is sovereign, even in the midst of those who stand against him, and the way in which God uses things for his glory. I thought about that when I came across this, once again, taken from the time period in which the Soviet Union was strong, and secular atheism was pushing back against those that loved Jesus. There was a pastor whose name was George Evins, high-impact man in Russia. And they brought him in, and they put him on trial for supposedly illegal activities, sharing the gospel and a printing press that was sharing various writings pertaining to Jesus Christ. The charges varied, the writer puts it in their degree of seriousness, but one of them had to do with Scripture. Now get this, get this. Pastor Vince had written out the 23rd Psalm in his own commentary on it by hand. And during his hearing, he was accused of opposing, rather composing, this, quote, anti-Soviet poem himself, the 23rd Psalm. Because they assumed the phrase prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, meant that the enemies referred to them. Georgie Vins in court said, I'm not the author of the 23rd Psalm. Don't you people know that that's from the Bible? 
the writer then tells us that the accusation was so absurd, it was almost comic, except for the gravity of the consequences. Now, here's an individual that was facing opposition. They did not even recognize the opponents, the word of Nonetheless, he drew their attention to the one who has authority. And so what we find here, then, in his case, was the clash of authorities. Ultimately, who has say? In your own personal experience, what you've got to establish thoroughly in your mind, who has ultimate say? Now, when Jesus Christ was in the temple, the question that was being posed to him was this, by what authority are you doing such things? And when you and I ponder the significance of what's found here in these verses, and when Christ is opposed, you begin with prayer, focusing, number one, upon the sovereignty of God in 23 and 24, secondly, focusing upon the word of God in verse 25 and 26, and now thirdly, focusing upon the plan of God found in 27 and 28, which are some of my favorite verses in all of the book of Acts. Look carefully as how it unfolds. This gives you a sense of perspective in the confusion of life. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Mark what comes next, would you? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, it was in this city. They're being very specific. Likewise, when you are praying to God, be very specific. They identify the issues. When you have a sense of hopelessness, like Dr. Hallisby wrote up, and you need a hopefulness, you become specific, not only in matters of location, but in matters of opposition. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, not we, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel at this point, to do what they wanted to do. Look carefully to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What is interesting is that if you read, whether it be chapters 1, 2, 3, or 4, the book of Acts so far, in each and every chapter you will find Peter, as he's speaking out loud to people, Acknowledging the fact that there's opposition to Jesus, but in each and every chapter, 
what we find is that God in his sovereignty is using the rebelliousness of those opposed to him as part of the plan to bring Jesus to the cross to die in our place for our sins and then raise Jesus from the dead. He takes something bad. He creates something good. And this is your God, you see. The sovereignty of God, the word of God, the plan of God, rooted right here. What interests me is that while they think they were able to kill Christ, and they had final authority, In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, we are told is that our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. This was a giving of life, not a taking of life. They might have thought that this was simply a taking of life. In reality, what we see is the sovereign God involved. He is simply involved in the giving of life because all this was taken into account in eternity past. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He's got the ultimate authority, the sovereignty of God, the word of God, the plan of God. It's all here for you and for me to ponder. Back to another illustration, the time of the Soviet Union. A man by the name of Alexander, another pastor, put in prison. One morning during the check to ensure that all 2,000 inmates were present, one of the officials ordered Alexander to remove the cross that was outside of his prison uniform, and Alexander refused. Take it off, shouted the official. I will never take it from my neck, he said. You must understand that this is my belief. I confess it before these people. I want to warn you that the Lord will never be humiliated. I am nothing but a child of God. If you are, and I marked this, against me, you are against him, I warn you. After severely beaten, they finally, when he was unconscious, removed the cross from him. But now the rest of the story. The inmates in a cell near Alexander knew what had been done to him. They were struck by his witness. Although it was very cold, one of them took off one of his socks and unraveled it completely. Then he took the yawn, fashioned a cross with it. Then he took a piece of paper, made a tube from it, then put the cross inside. Then he used the construction of the cell block to his advantage. Each cell had a small opening near the ceiling through which ran the electrical wires for the single light bulb in the cell. A small passageway connected the cells where the wiring ran from cell to cell. It was in this narrow passage that the inmate inserted his paper tube with the cross inside. 
lifted up on the shoulders of two other cellmates. He blew the cross through the paper tube like a blow dot towards Alexander's cell. The cross wafted down from the top of Alexander's cell and dropped straight into his lap while he prayed. He had been without a cross only three hours. But still more. More. The prison official who had initiated the incident with Alexander disappeared two days later. Later, guards came to Alexander's cell to tell him what had happened. The official had been a sportsman, strong, healthy, proud of his physical prowess. But he had suddenly developed an acute bile disorder. The prison infirmary couldn't help him, and neither could the medical experts in Moscow who were put in his case. Two months later, Alexander heard the sound of a dirge as a coffin was carried to the cemetery nearby. The man had died. And after that, Alexander said, the prison officials were afraid to touch me. Now ponder this. Now what we find in today's society is this. Somewhere along the way, Muhammad past mocks in the midst of the night. What does communism have in common with the caliphate of today? Both are issues of authority. Secular communism wanted to exert ultimate authority over God's people. The religious caliphate in the Middle East today seeks to establish authority over people. What this has in common is this. The biggest issues of life is the answer to the question, but who says? Who has ultimate authority? Now get personal. When you find yourself spiritually opposed because of the forces of this world, and you're feeling a sense of helplessness, and you're longing for a sense of hopefulness, here's where you begin. You focus upon, number one, the sovereignty of God. You couple it, second of all, with the word of God. You connect it, thirdly, to the plan of God. And now, fourthly, when Christ is opposed, you begin with prayer, and you're focusing upon the response of God. God, break in. Do something. You ever been there? Maybe you are there. So now the appeal, and there are two significant requests floating in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. First request, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Second request, they don't pray at this point, go get them. No. Instead, what they are asking for is greater boldness in the midst of spiritual opposition to serve God. You ever pray that way? Give me courage. Give me added strength and give me wisdom to be able to face the issues of the hour that are so confusing. Because you're sovereign, the issues are not. It's your word, not others' opinion. It's your plan, not others' plots. So they pray here. 
and they are responding now to all that's taking place in God's word and are expecting God in turn to respond to their prayers. And there are two significant requests. Look upon their threats, number one. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, number two. And while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through what? The name of your holy servant, Jesus. The very issue the authorities were most concerned with. Now notice the response in verse 31. And there are three evidences here that God hears their prayer. And when they had prayed, number one, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Number two, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do you do as a result of all this? Number three, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And when you are dealing with ultimate issues, this is how you approach them. For as Dr. Hallisby put it, listen, my friend, listen. Your helplessness is your best prayer. Cause from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all of your uttered pleas. God hears it from the very moment that you are seized with helplessness. He becomes actively engaged at once in hearing and answering the prayer of your helplessness. He hears today as he heard the helpless and wordless prayer of the man sick with palsy. Take your helplessness to get and follow these guidelines and watch the hopefulness fill your heart. Let's stand together. So, Father, no matter what situation any are in in any of these services today, There is a powerful set of guidelines you've given us to be able to follow. And in those days when it seems as though we're so overwhelmed and we seem to lack words when it comes to prayer, you know the heart. In those hours, maybe in the middle of the night when we're praying, but it seems as though prayers are simply bouncing off the ceiling tiles. You hear and we await your response. So thank you, Father, for being sovereign and for meeting us at our point of need. And for this we give you all the praise now in Jesus' name.
God bless you.